Hello and welcome to the last episode in this series of Just The Tonic, the podcast that highlights the benefits we get from being involved in the arts. We've heard from inspirational dancers, musicians, singers, poets who've talked about the positive effects the arts have had on their lives, from increasing confidence and self-esteem to developing social skills and building new friendships. I've chatted to dance supremo Carlos Acosta from Birmingham Royal Ballet, fabulous singers Leslie Garrett and Nikki Spence, star of stage and screen Richard Stilgo and wonderful poet Ian McMillan. We've heard from deaf dancers Billy Reed and Sarah from Critical Mass who performed at Birmingham's International Dance Festival. Saxophonist Alicia Hillman who's been helped by the fantastic charity Help Musicians. And we've heard how music in hospitals and care provides a lifeline for people who otherwise wouldn't get the chance to access live music. If you missed previous episodes in this series, or indeed in Series 1, featuring arts champions like Nicola Benedetti and Charles Hazelwood and Chichi Nwanaku, you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are in all the usual places. Regular listeners will know that throughout this series, we've been following the fantastic community orchestra from the West Midlands and beyond, the People's Orchestra. And in this episode, we'll be hearing from singers who've recently joined their fabulous show choirs. I absolutely love singing. When you're feeling a little bit down, you get to choir and you're almost dancing when you come out because it's so uplifting. Singer Laurie Stanton from Portalbert in Wales will be telling us how joining the world-renowned Morriston Orpheus Choir has changed his life. We've travelled Europe, seen many places, wonderful places, but I think that's what's keeping me young, to be honest. The activity with choirs, it really is. And I'll be chatting to author Kit Duval, whose wonderful memoir, Without Warning and Only Sometimes, details her extraordinary life growing up in Birmingham in the 1960s. So a lot of people talk about it and think about it and don't actually do it. So start and have a go and don't be intimidated. Don't be ashamed of your writing, just have a go. I look forward to bringing you more from Kit later, but first, let's hear from singers from the People's Orchestra Show Choirs. They got together to perform at the Birmingham 2022 Festival during the Commonwealth Games, and we caught up with some of their newest choir members to find out what singing together means to them. Here's Harriet from the new show choir in Shrewsbury. I enjoy singing. Um, I heard it was a newly formed choir in Shrewsbury, and it was doing musical songs, and it was just a way of... Um, getting out, having fun, singing with lots of like-minded people. We've got about 25 in our choir and it sounded good, but when we got 80, 100 people yesterday, it, it was absolutely amazing. I'm Carol Walker, I'm from Hales Owen. Yesterday was my first concert that I'm doing this weekend and I went home really on a high uh, and it's, it's just wonderful when you're on your own um, you know, you just meet other people and it's, it's, it's just uplifting and everybody's so friendly. I'm Marion, I'm from Sutton Coalfield. Well, every week our choir built up and built up, so it was fantastic um, that it grew so quickly because it's quite a new choir. So we've all grown together 
and grown as friends together. You know, not one person really knew each other to start with. In terms of the huge show choir, it's just brilliant because uh, choirs come together from all over the country and suddenly you're a part of this great big enterprise and we all become friends together. We're beginning to recognise people from Cheltenham or from Brackley or from Shrewsbury um, and it's like a meeting of great singing friends. Um, my name's Philip Field and I'm from Hales Owen Choir. I was, I was in two minds when I very first started singing it's the best thing I've ever done without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, the health benefits, the social benefits, it's just incredible. It makes you feel so good inside. So I would say definitely, definitely give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? My name's Pat Turner. I'm from Northfield in Birmingham. Music is very uplifting and the opportunity to meet others of like-minded interests is fabulous. It really opens doors for you and if ever you, you're at a loss of what to do and you're feeling a little bit down, you get to choir and you come out, you're almost dancing when you come out because it's so uplifting. The concert today is going to be fabulous. Um, the music is brilliant, it really is uplifting and to hear all those voices together, it's just a magical experience. Hi, my name's Ula and I'm the choral programme manager for the People's Show Choir. So everybody sings in their own separate choir, whether it's in Cheltenham or whether it's in Hales Owen or wherever they might be. They all learn the same music as well as finding their own little individual voice with their choirs. But on top of that, we all sing together three times a year. We come together, everybody makes friends and it doesn't matter where everybody's come from, it unites everybody. So we're, we're coming together to celebrate the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. All of the choirs are performing together alongside the People's Orchestra and we're singing songs which are uplifting and rousing and inspiring um, and yeah, bringing people together to enjoy unity of singing. If you're on the fence and you're not entirely sure about joining a choir, I would say come along for three rehearsals. One rehearsal is never enough. Come along to three. If you still don't like it, do you know what? That's fine, you tried, but I bet you'll stay. Many thanks to Ulla and all the new singers from the People's Orchestra Show Choirs. And now we're going to move across the country from the West Midlands to Wales. There is nothing quite like the close harmonies of a Welsh male voice choir and the Morriston Orpheus Choir is one of the very best. Formed in Morriston in the Swansea Valley in 1935 and widely known as the Ambassadors of Song, the choir has performed all over the world from Taiwan to Abu Dhabi. They've sung in front of the Queen and even at CERN in Switzerland, the home of the Large Hadron Collider. Joining the choir was a life changer for 86-year-old Laurie Stanton, and here he is to tell us more. I worked in the steel industry for 40 years. I retired in 1991. Unfortunately, my wife of 57 years passed away in 2013. And as you can imagine, I wasn't in a very good place. But then after a couple of weeks, I bumped into an old workmate of mine. 
And he said, Laurie, I know you've always liked music. I'm in a choir. Why don't you join the choir and see what you feel? And so I did, and that was the uh, Patalbert Cymric Male Voice Choir. And I have to say, it gave me a new life. It really did. And then after four years, I was lucky enough to be accepted by the Morriston Orpheus Choir, which is a world-renowned choir, has been all over the world. And they sing a variety of music, classics, gospel, West End musicals, from the shows and so forth. Quite honestly, it really made my life. We go to her rehearsals twice a week. We've travelled Europe, seen many places, wonderful places in Europe. And we visited great halls, theatres, cathedrals. We've seen all these places, suddenly enjoyed them. And then after each concert, of course, you, you go to a cafeteria or, or, or a public house and you enjoy the music. We usually start singing then, and the people around us will gather, and we have a wonderful time, didn't it? So, yes, it's given me a busy life, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Although he joined the choir later in life, Laurie has been singing since he was very young. I was a boy soprano and um, I used to be taken around the chapels, churches and all of you uh, when I was young. A little bit frustrating really because I wanted to be out with my mates. <laughs> I've loved music ever since and I've always enjoyed singing. But i never done anything uh, as a soloist as such other than if we went out for an evening uh, in, in a pub or whatever. <laughs> Never had any musical training. I remember one particular instance where I was in a holiday camp and I thought that um, we were just entertaining each other in this concert. Um, when I went to the back room, a lady said to me, where did you have your voice trained? Well, I've never had it trained. So there must be something there that's okay, that pleases people. We weren't a rich family. We were just getting along. Couldn't afford to be trained or anything, even if we wanted. My wife was always on to me about getting my voice trained and I, I just didn't want to live out of a suitcase anyway. I thought that's not for a married man. My marriage was more important to me than anything, that was it. 
Why is there this strong tradition of choral singing in Wales? Possibly because of the way we speak and the pitch of our voices. Uh, it seems to blend when we sing. It's a unique sound. It's a wonderful tradition. It's so pleasant to listen to the voices blending and making that wonderful sound. find themselves, and there are many, who find themselves in the same position that I was in, where they've lost their partners, they're lonely, they're sitting at home, they're not happy with themselves, and it starts to get a little bit of a psychological problem. If anyone likes music, I would say go and join a choir, male or female, and you'll find friends there who will help you along the way. Just don't sit in the house and be miserable yourself. I remember on one occasion I was feeling really down. I said to myself, well, no one can think for me. I'm thinking, and I'm making myself miserable, so what am I doing that for? Get out of the seat and go do something. If it's only go for a walk down the road and talk to people, or go out the garden and do something. If you're in that position, go and join a choir. You will never, ever regret it. But I think that's what's keeping me young, to be honest. The activity with players, it really is. is what I call a rousing finish. Many thanks to Laurie and long may he continue to enjoy his singing and his social life with the wonderful Morriston Orpheus Choir. And if you'd like to find out more about the choir, just head over to their website at morristonorpheus.com. Now, my next guest, the writer Kit Deval, was born in Birmingham and grew up in the suburb of Moseley. Her mother was from Ireland, her father from St Kitts in the Caribbean. Kit says she grew up in a household of opposites and extremes, and her latest book, Without Warning and Only Sometimes, which was recently Radio 4 Book of the Week, is a very moving and honest memoir of her childhood. Kit's a champion of inclusivity in the arts and presented Where Are All the Working Class Writers for Radio 4. She's an ambassador for Listening Books, which is the audiobook lending charity. I caught up with Kit over Zoom and asked her if there were lots of books at home when she was growing up. There was the Bible in my house, there was whatever book my sister Kim got from the library, but there were no books. So there were Jehovah's Witness books, there was the Bible, that's it. My father read the News of the World. 
or the great work of fiction. Um, <laughs> and there was, that was it, you know, that that was the reading material. And I certainly didn't miss books, didn't want to read, hated reading. It just reminded me of school, which I didn't like. It reminded me of going to church or the meetings, as we called them, which I didn't like. So not interested in books, not in the slightest. It, when we, when I was at school and we used to read, you know, the way we did in the 60s round the class, three pages each, three pages each. Oh, my God, that was torture to me. I mean, honestly, how to kill the love of a great book, eh? I mean... It's just not the way to do it, is it? No, it's how to ruin a book. Yeah. Very, yeah. very occasionally, very occasionally, I would run ahead because I was just interested in what was going to happen. Um, but then you knew that you then, it was even worse because you knew what was going to happen. You had to wait for Malcolm Bomford or Tony Queenan to get there in their terrible drongo voices and I'd be like oh my god are we ever going to get to the Miss Havisham dying are we ever going to get there so um yeah it was, it was ghastly hated it so what made things change what happened I left home at 16 and uh sex drugs and rock and roll it was absolutely great till it wasn't and then when it wasn't and I had to stop that lifestyle I found it very, very difficult to sleep. I mean, I was extremely anxious. I'd had some bad trips. I'd had some bad times and I couldn't sleep for months. And um, eventually someone uh, that I worked with just suggested books to me. And I just thought, oh, you know, nothing to lose here. Even though I don't like reading, I'll do it because it's actually excruciating being awake at four in the morning. So I just went and bought these 10 classic novels took them home, read them, and I was like, hmm, I like this. And it did stop me being so anxious. I would say I swapped one drug for another. You know, I definitely found reading addictive and raced through hundreds of the classics. I mean, I read so much for the rest of my life. Um, perhaps not with the intensity that, uh, that I read at first, and obviously, I've never done an English degree. I still couldn't tell you what postmodernism is or what does that, you know, who who knew who, what they were trying to say in 1740, all that stuff. I don't know. I don't care either. I read indiscriminately. I, I went, literally went for the picture on the front. You know, do I like that picture? Yeah, I like that picture. I'll buy that. And read some books I hated, North and South, Jesus Christ, that was terrible. And a few others I can think of, Mill on the Floss. Oh, so bad. But most of them, I was even if I didn't love them, I was engrossed in them. And so got through that hard time. How did that then shift into thinking, well, maybe I could do this too? I started reading like that when I was 21 or 22, and I read continuously till I was about 42 when I adopted a little boy um, who's very ill. And for the first time in my life, I was not working, was not doing anything. I wasn't even doing a lot of reading. And I just thought, oh, I'll write a book. You know, how hard can it be? The answer is very hard. I thought I had read so many books. I'll just, yeah, yeah. I'll write one. It'll get published. Um, 
it'll be water stones in about six weeks after I send it in. I never knew you had to have an agent. I didn't even know what an editor was. I'd only ever heard of Penguin. So to me, Penguin was publishing, didn't know about the other publishers. So I wrote some short stories. Some of them got published. I wrote a novel. It wasn't very good. You know, I couldn't get it published. I wrote another novel, couldn't get it published. And I was shocked to find just the gap between the vision or the scene that was in my head and how difficult it was to get that on the page, the actual nuts and bolts of sentence construction. Was there anybody helping you at this point? Because you said, you know, it wasn't very good, it didn't happen, but I went back. I mean, was anybody then advising you? Did you have friends or or, or fellow writers that you'd met who said, oh, try doing it this way or I'll take a different approach? I went to a couple of writers groups that were absolutely appalling um, in that they were sort of monopolised by people that, you know, most people, if you've ever been in a writing group, you'll know this. There's somebody who runs it. Whether they run it or not, in air quotes, they are in charge and and will give the flavour of the writing group. So I didn't have a good time with that. But I did do an MA in creative writing when I was 52. That wasn't very good either. But by then, I had met a cohort of writers that had also done the MA. We hadn't finished talking about writing. We hadn't finished learning. So we formed our own little group, which is still going. It's called Oxford Narrative Group. And I joined or set up another writers group called Leather Lane Writers. That's also still going. So the fellowship and the friendship and the learning from other writers is absolutely invaluable. It's really interesting picking up what you're saying before about your experience and lack of knowledge of the way publishing worked. And the fact that, you know, you were like most of us, let's be honest, you're seduced by either a recommendation or the way the book looks on the shelf, right? I mean, publishers have unbelievable power to influence what we read, don't they? What I know about publishing is that they do an enormous amount of work to find out who buys what, who reads what. There's, you know, there's departments at Penguin Random House that will tell you this sort of person reads this sort of book. And if someone reads that book, they're likely to read that book. Now, publishing is an industry. So publishing is there to make money. So if you've bought this type of book before, they will target you with that kind of book. But it is run by people that care about readers, I would say. But there is a disconnect between the people that they target to read books and new readers, people that don't read, people that don't read books. Now, sometimes people don't read books because they haven't got the time. Sometimes people don't read books because they say, well, it's nothing to do with me. I'm not going to read a story about someone else. I want to read a story about someone that speaks to me about my life, where I come from, set in my town. Talks like the people I know, talks about the things that I care about. Now, not everyone wants to read that because some some of us and lots of us want to read about someone else's life. But there are um, some readers who are turned off from reading because it doesn't represent them or it doesn't speak to them or just the way the industry presents itself, white, middle class, very, very female except till you get to the top, like most professions, where there's the men right at the top. Anyway, that's a digression. So what publishing needs to do for me is find the new writers, find the people that are turned off 
from reading because it's not about them. It's not written by people that come from where they come from. And I think publishing's less good at doing that. They're very good at giving people what they want over and over and over. You know, if you like Jojo Moyes, you're going to like Adele Park. You're going to like blah, blah, blah. They do that brilliantly. What they don't put as much money and effort into is finding new readers from marginalised groups or people that are not just marginalised, people that just don't connect with reading for whatever reason. And that should be a whole department, actually, in all publishing houses. Who's not reading and why? What was your breakthrough moment then? When, when did it click for you as a writer and also with the publishing houses? It clicked that I could be one when I had a 250-word story published in. No, I don't think it did get published, but it got an honorary mention. So there's the winner in, in a short story competition. There's winner, there's second, there's third, there's runners-up, then there's honorary mention. I got an honorary mention. I was... It was the best day of my life. I can honestly say, I like, oh, I can do it. I'm not bad. Someone's recognised my work. It was 250 word story. <laughs> that was everything. And they said the competition, which is called the Fish Prize in in Ireland, said if you want, you can come and read it out at the uh, festival. And so I think I probably cost me £400 to get to Ireland because I, I flew, I hired a car, I booked a hotel, and I read this 250-word story out. That took three minutes. <laughs> to me, that was glory. That was like, well, hey, I've done it. And from that point onwards, I was always wanting to have that same feeling of, you can do it. Someone gets it. Someone's read your work. Someone appreciates your work. Someone understands what you're trying to say. And for most writers, it's the same. You want that connection with your readers. I'm just interested, you were saying earlier about how you, growing up in a in such a sort of a varied environment and you had your different voices, what voice do you write with? The voice that I write with, certainly for my memoir, was me as a child. It was just me, you know, completely unwise. There are some memoirs where you'll have a sentence like this. My grandmother was horrible to me. She pinched me and locked me in a cupboard. And then the next sentence will say, I later found out that, you know, and when she died at 85, it was because of blah, blah, blah. And they bring the wisdom of the adult into the child's world. And that works really well sometimes you know, that you are getting the author inter interposing in the child's voice or the child's interests. I never do that. I just go, that happened, that happened, that happened, because that's how I experience it. And I want to just present you with the things that happen. And it's for the reader to make those jumps as to why or to understand why. And I do love the voice of the child. I like writing in the voice of the child. Do you think that having had the experience of having to sort of mix with all these different elements of your family and your communities has given you a sort of a flexibility, if you like, as a writer, though, to put yourself into different yeah, worlds, yeah. different characters? Yeah. yeah. And also not just um, my childhood in that you had to do this code switching and, and be different people, but um, I was a watcher. So, I, you know, one of my sisters was a reader. My brother was an absolute joker. The boy never stopped joking and laughing and performing 
And then I had a sister who was just very quiet. Um, and I had another sister who was just, I don't know, pushing the envelope all the time. And I was the watcher. People would come and visit my mom, and I just watched their mannerisms and you could tell if they were happy or sad or if they were lying. Still love people watching. It strikes me hearing you talk about your experience in your 20s that discovering books kind of really was a revelation and a saviour, if you like. It did, it did help you enormously. Do you think... uh, that that being a successful writer certainly discovering the love of writing and then as you know almost as a sideline you know discovering that you're extremely successful at it um has that changed you as a person oh god I hope not I know my family think I'm the same I'd like to think my friends think I haven't changed one bit that there are inevitable things that change about what you do with your time. So I would I do more writing I go to literary festivals certain things change but the core of me, I would like to think, hasn't changed since I was a child. You know, I'd like to think that's still intact. And the flip side of that is that I would always want to be changing my views on life, changing my views on what life's about, who people are. If I had written a book when I was 21, I would have still had the stain of being a Jehovah's Witness. Extremely judgmental, I think I would have been. Very black and white. Because I didn't start writing to my 40s, I think I was better placed to be uh, kinder than perhaps I would have been uh, when I had all the arrogance of youth. I think it's helped Uh, you, though, as a person. Do you think being able to express yourself through your writing and to be able to be published, has that been cathartic for you? I don't think so. I think it's more a creative outlet. I don't think I've got something... Uh, you know, to get off my chest or something that I want to understand. What for me it is, is the absolute joy of creativity and expressing that creative thing as much as it would be if I was in a choir or if I was a painter. Of course, that is cathartic in that you're getting your art out there. But I don't feel there's any sort of psychodynamic explanations going on or anything like that for me. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I mean, I know you're very involved with listening books and clearly access to literature, access to reading is very important to you. I mean, how crucial, how vital do you think it is for people to to be welcomed in to the world of books? Absolutely vital. There is so much, so much about this world that excludes you if you are not a super reader, for example, you know, if you're not a confident reader, like, or you're reading tastes. So let's say I'm a, a woman of 35 and I like Mills and Boone. That will be looked down on by some people. You know, oh, well, you're not a proper reader. That's not a proper book. It's not literary. Or if you like crime thrillers, or if you like a book with a pink cover and a bit of gold on the front. Oh, well, you know, it's not Ian McEwan. No, it isn't Ian McEwan. It's my taste. It's what I like to do. And I think that sort of snobbery absolutely has no place. It has no place in the world, full stop, but it certainly has no place when you're trying to invite people to come to reading, to explore different lives, to be understood, to learn something about how other people work, obviously along the way to learn stuff about yourself to connect with the classics a classic is a book that hasn't finished saying what it's got to say Mm -hmm. and those classics have endured for a reason they're not all great sometimes they're hard going but they have endured 
because they haven't finished saying what they want to say. And I think it would be great for people to read them. It's also great to read the pink cover with the gold on that you leave on the lilo for the next person in Benidorm. Nothing wrong with that. And so I think we need to continue to be welcoming to anyone with any kind of reading taste at any level of reading, you know, from the cat sat on the mat to Chaucer, everything's got its place. And if people listening to this are inspired to not just maybe read more widely outside their comfort zone, perhaps, but maybe to want to write as well, what what advice would you give a budding writer? Definitely to write. So a lot of people talk about it and think about it and um, don't actually do it because uh, and very, for very good reason, often they're intimidated. They've read a fantastic book, very much like I did when I read Madame Bovary, and you think, well, you know, I can't do that. I, I'm, I'm not. No, you're not that person. But who you are and, and what you've got to say is valid. So have a go and copy. That's another good thing. If there is a writer that you like, copy the writer just to get you going. Just say, if I was Adele Parks or Jojo Moyes or Ian McEwan, how would I write about the car accident that I saw once? And just write about it in their voice. Copy them, copy their style. And you will learn from that how to create a good sentence. Good sentence becomes a good paragraph. Good paragraph becomes a good chapter and so forth. So start and have a go and don't be intimidated. Don't be ashamed of your writing. Just have a go. Huge thanks to Kit Duval. Without warning and only sometimes is available now in bookshops and you can listen to an abridged version at Book of the Week on the Radio 4 website. Thanks also to Laurie Stanton and the Morrison Orpheus Choir and to the singers from the People's Orchestra Show Choirs. Big thanks, as always, to all our friends at the People's Orchestra who do so much to create opportunities for musicians, singers and behind-the-scenes staff in the West Midlands and beyond. It's been such a pleasure to bring you stories that highlight just how much we all benefit from the arts over the last two series of Just the Tonic. I hope we've inspired you to maybe join a choir or get your instrument out that's been sitting at the back of a cupboard or maybe we've encouraged you to write a story or a poem that you've been thinking about for years. If you're looking for inspiration or information about groups in your area, get in touch with Arts Council England, the Arts Council of Wales, the Arts Council of Northern Ireland or Creative Scotland. You can catch up on any episodes you've missed in all the usual places you find your podcasts. And if you follow us on social media, we're on Twitter and on Instagram, you'll be the first to know about what's coming up. Do let us know as well if there's someone that you think we should be featuring in the future. Thank you ever so much for listening. Just the Tonic with Katie Derriam was produced by Jill Davis. It's a Peanut and Crumb production supported by the People's Orchestra and Arts Council England.